0: To listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Hi, my name's Caitlin. We're going to be looking at not at John 4, but at John 5, um, verses 1 to 18. And you can find that either in the Bibles in front of you or in the handout you received as you walked in. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralysed. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The Lord forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God.
1: Well, thank you for recognising that it is not, in fact, John 4 we're doing. That would have been a very spontaneous sermon. I had to preach that. But yeah, uh, hi everyone. It's really good to see you. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Jordan, uh, and it's a pleasure to be with you all again. So, just who is this man? Uh, that is the question which John's gospel continually seems to be throwing at us as it follows Jesus' ministry. Last week, we saw a royal official take Jesus at his word that he could heal his terminally ill son. Just before that in the chapter, we also saw that many from a Samaritan town came to believe in him. The chapter as a whole showed us some pretty encouraging responses to Jesus, and it even showed us some very unlikely people take him at his word and receive him as Lord. Lord. That is, they came to understand truly who he is. But now, though, in chapter 5, we're going to see Jesus conducting his ministry actually in a very different context. Actually, a distinctly Jewish context. Because we are in Jerusalem, and we're there on the Sabbath. Sabbath. Uh, And what we're going to encounter is, first of all, a Jewish man who Jesus heals miraculously, and secondly, the Jewish leaders who catch wind of his healing. And as we explore their reactions to him, well, we are going to encounter some ways of misunderstanding Jesus and his ministry this week. Uh, And in doing so, we might just be confronted about some of our own attitudes towards him. So let's dive into our first scene, and that is, sorry, the misunderstanding of the Father. So as I said, we find Jesus in Jerusalem at a Jewish festival, Uh, and this, as you might expect, was a really busy time in the city with an awful lot of activity. Uh, I would dare to say even that it might have been busier than the Works market on a Saturday morning. But the particular location we find Jesus is in the pool of Bethesda. That is a very sheltered pool area, which is surrounded by a lot of the sick and crippled citizens of the city. And we see Jesus approach one particular individual who had been crippled for almost four decades 38 years. This man had been without use of his legs and who was obviously a very regular member of this crowd at the pool. He likely would have spent his days begging for food or money and otherwise just watching the world go by around him. It was, for all intents and purposes, a pretty grim and difficult existence. Now, our narrative really begins when Jesus approaches him. And as he does, he asks him a really simple question. He says, do you want to be made well? Let's see what the man's response tells us about his understanding of God. He says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I go down to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, if you've never actually read this passage before, Uh, or even if it's just been a little while since you've read it, then you're probably wondering why, when this man is asked if he would like to be made well, he suddenly starts talking about having a bath. But if you have a look at your Bibles or your service sheets, you'll notice that they don't actually have a verse 4 in this chapter, unless you're using the King James Version. (laughs) And the reason they don't is because that little phrase that we have labeled verse 4 Uh, is a later addition to John's gospel, where someone has tried to helpfully provide some background context to the pool of Bethesda. And here's what that little verse says. It says, From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. We don't know when or exactly how this tradition started. Uh, It may have been that the water in the pool did actually contain some kind of medicinal properties. Uh, It might have been that some people had skin conditions which benefited from it, and then the rumor mill blew that out of proportion. The whole thing might just have been pure placebo effect. Uh, But regardless of what gave rise to this tradition, The important thing for our purposes is that it did not represent God's character at all. Try and imagine the scene. Uh, This mass of society's most desolate individuals who spend the day waiting in hope. Well, all of a sudden, uh, whenever the pool starts to bubble, possibly just because a reservoir outside the city was letting more water in, whenever it starts to bubble, every time this would happen, Rides of people would charge and push their way towards the water so that the first one in could claim themselves to be healed. It was every man and woman for themselves. The first shall be first, and the last shall be last. And let's be honest, it was probably the least sick and the least crippled who were able to get there first every time. I don't know about you, But that kind of frantic, self-serving chaos doesn't sound like how the God of the Bible operates to me. But interestingly, though, do you see how Jesus doesn't actually even begin to correct the man's faulty impressions of his heavenly Father? He just approaches him, tells him to get up and walk, and bring his bed with him. And so he gets up, and off he goes and the miracle's over. I think this very understated moment is a really good time to remember that John's gospel, by habit, refers to miracles primarily as signs. Because, of course, signs are never the destination in and of themselves. They point you to the destination in which you're supposed to go. And so what we see is that this very brief but significant sign has just pointed to Jesus as the one with the power to overcome four decades of useless legs in an instant. In a very real way, it is a sign that Jesus is the giver of life, because in many respects, this man just got his back. And it wasn't through the power of folklore about angels who arbitrarily dole out healing on a first-come, 1st first serve basis. It wasn't a lucky break from a distant God who neither really notices nor cares what happens to people, he just makes some kind of sick game out of their health. It was in fact through God himself in the flesh as viscerally and tangibly close as he could be walking amongst the needy. So it seems God has drawn near to this man, but will he understand who it is that has healed him and what this sign says about him? Will he correct his misunderstanding? For now, though, let's continue into our next scene, and that is misunderstanding the Sabbath. And I'm not sure how clued in you are on uh, Jewish laws and festivals, but the weekly Sabbath day on which this healing occurred was a very special day for the Jews Uh, You may know that originally, God gave this day to Israel in the wilderness after they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. And God did that as a gracious instruction to rest from their work and to remember that he is their provider. So one day every week, if you were a Jew, you would stop working. You would stop the farming, the herding, quit the life admin. You would rest and remember God cares for you. And it sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Uh, But unfortunately, over the centuries, the Sabbath had undergone a few modifications to its parameters. Uh, It had undergone a few additional rules, which had been added by the Jewish leaders to make absolutely sure that everyone kept the day holy. Have a look at this, I find this wild. So what we have here is a little sort of periodic table of the melakos or the activities which a uh, conservative Jewish tradition forbids even to this day. Uh, you probably won't be able to read what all we say from here, uh, but it includes normal things like reaping, sowing, weaving. Uh, it also includes other things like just preparing to weave or striking a killing blow. I hope that wasn't too common an occurrence. But right here is today's broken category, and that is carrying. You were forbidden by Jewish leadership to engage in the work of carrying things outside your home from the Sabbath duration of Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And I'm sure, just like I find it difficult, you find it very hard to comprehend just how alien this kind of practice is from our normal expressions of devotion to God. Um, I mean, not not the first part, not taking a day to rest, that is good. And in fact, if you do work every single day by habit, you should really consider what you're doing there and whether God has designed us to work relentlessly like that. But on the other end of the spectrum, to rest so diligently that you don't so much as accidentally pick anything up and move around outside your home with it, that is on another level entirely. Uh, In New York City, there's actually 18 miles of fishing wire strung up around the city called an eruv roof. You can see the little wire just there on the corner of one of the streets. Uh, And what this eruv roof does is it symbolically extends your home and offers quite a large workaround to some of these carrying rules. Uh, If you are within these 18 miles of wire, it counts as your private residence. Otherwise, from Friday night to Saturday night, if you are a Jew, you cannot lawfully carry important things like your phone or your child outside unless it is an emergency. And I just want to say, as I point that out, I I don't highlight this um, in a mocking way. But I do want to emphasize again that in this passage, we see a very misunderstood idea of who God is and what he wants for his people. But by now, anyway, I hope it is clear why the Jewish leaders would be quite unimpressed by the man who has just been healed you see, he may have understood God as distant and uncaring, perhaps especially when it came to the poor and some of the suffering. Uh, but the Jewish leaders misunderstood God as a strict and petty taskmaster. Because rather than the Sabbath being a blessing of rest from all of your hard work, time to spend in worship with the community, remembering God's continuous love and favor towards his people, Uh, Well, for many people, it was now a burden to be borne diligently. And so, in a way, these particular religious leaders, not necessarily all Jews in general, but they saw God as even more petty than the crippled man did. Now, Jesus will come to deal with this view of Sabbath work soon, and particularly next week, but... First look at the man's response to their questioning in verse 12 where they ask him, why do you break the Sabbath? Who is it that told you to pick up your mat and walk? And he just says, "Uh, the guy who healed me, he he told me to walk. (laughs) He just sort of rats Jesus out. Except he doesn't actually know to call him Jesus because apparently he didn't even bother to ask his name His response to the Jews actually reminds me a little bit of Adam, when God confronts him in the garden after eating the fruit. (laughs) Uh, The the woman you put here with me, she gave it to me. Nothing to do with me, you put her here. It's that kind of denial, no responsibility, nothing to do with me. Blame him. But more than that, it's really striking, I think, that when Jesus, uh, Jesus chooses to reveal himself to the man again in verse 14, He says, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And I wonder if you find that warning just a little jarring, maybe overly blunt, Uh, that a man who, until five minutes ago, has been crippled, who's been reduced to begging and pathetically waiting by a pool, hoping to win the healing lottery, well, he's just warned outright to stop sinning, as bluntly as he was told to get up and walk. This little passage reminds me uh, of the paralyzed man who gets lowered through the roof as Jesus is preaching and teaching in a house. Uh, If you know the story, you'll remember that the very first thing Jesus says to that man is, son, your sins are forgiven. And there he actually does that even before he heals him. And I think then that there are two things here uh, that help us rightly understand the heart of God from the way Jesus ministers to people. The first thing is what we've just seen already, and that is that Jesus is wonderfully compassionate. That the Lord and creator of the universe thinks absolutely nothing of walking into the middle of society's undesirables and associating with them. When he learned how long the man had been there, he heals him without even a single indication of faith. And as God's redeemed people, Jesus shows us then that just as he loved and served us when we didn't deserve it, so then we need not wait until we think other people deserve it before we help them. Nor should we only wait until we think we've got a guaranteed response coming to our help. Nor should we only help those who look and sound and think just like us our food ministry here at NIAC is one wonderful example of serving those in difficulty. Of course, there are many, many more. But the reason that those ministries are so important is because God is good to all people. And if that is true, then we too are not to discriminate in showing kindness to those we encounter. And so on that, I want to challenge you, just as I very much had to challenge myself To think about who you find it hard to engage with. Maybe even here at church. Do you, for example, find that folks with different theological perspectives stress or annoy you? Uh, What about the people who are obviously quite unrefined by your standards? Uh, The people who are a little more Marmite sandwich than avocado on toast? Maybe it's people in different life circumstances. Are you the parent that only ever talks to other parents and you just discuss your children all day? That's something I'm going to have to think about an awful lot moving forward. Are you, by contrast, the single guy whose entire personality is sports? I could go on and on and on, but I think you get my point. And that is, who are we most and least likely to give ourselves to? to offer help, compassion, or even just conversation? And what might Jesus have to say about the patterns he notices in our lives? It's not a question I particularly want to keep asking myself, but it's certainly one that I need to. The second thing that we learn alongside Jesus' incredible care for all people is that he always reminds us that our biggest problem, no matter how good or bad our circumstances in life are, is sin. Ask anyone on the street what the world's biggest problems are, they'll give you a whole host of answers. They will say things like poverty, famine, disease, war, injustice, exploitation. And these are all very good answers, they are all serious issues, and I could never fault someone for suggesting them. And yet, despite how compassionate Jesus is, especially for some of those kinds of people, the exploited, the suffering, the oppressed, you notice how he never ever suggests that their lowly status in the world somehow removes their personal responsibility for sin. And that's because whenever Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse may happen, he isn't threatening the man that he will personally cause some kind of worse earthly suffering if he doesn't stop. Uh, And I also don't think that he's saying the man's condition, his being crippled, is linked to a certain sin in his past. Although, in certain circumstances, that could be possible. What I think Jesus is really doing here is he's warning him that there is a fate worse than that of a crippled beggar awaiting those who reject God. That there is an eternity of paying the rightful consequences of your sin waiting for you if you reject the one person who will pay it for you. If you refuse to follow the one who gives you life. Sadly though, this particular man doesn't seem concerned with Jesus' warning. Uh, Perhaps he was indignant, Jesus told him to sin. Look what I've been through, who are you to to judge me? Uh, Maybe he so badly wanted favor in the eyes of the Jewish leaders that he didn't care to find out about this individual who they obviously disapproved of. We're not really sure. But whatever the case, he seems to just take uh, his healing and he leaves to inform them about Jesus and not in a good way. I think that's a lesson to us that we often think if life were just a little bit easier, if we just had a little bit more, if we could just catch a break, we think how much happier and more thankful we would be. But sadly, it's often not the case. Now though, we've come to our last scene. We've had a healing on the Sabbath, which revealed two misunderstandings about God as a distant and uncaring, or a legalistic taskmaster. But now Jesus finds himself confronted by the religious leaders, who also demonstrate their misunderstanding of the Son. Remember in the beginning, how we saw that Jesus did not stop to correct the crippled man's faulty view of God's mercy. He just gets straight to the point and heals him. Well, we sort of see the same thing again here uh, when he engages the Jewish leaders and their view of God. See, he doesn't get into a discussion about how wildly overblown most of their traditions and rules are. Uh, He doesn't argue about how they go so far beyond the intent of God's command to rest, that they've turned the day into a burden. He gets straight to the heart of the issue, and that is his own identity. And so in his defense against this serious charge of not only breaking the Sabbath, but causing another person to do the same, Jesus simply says in verse 17, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And what he's doing uh, is using reasoning that the Jews would have been familiar with. Uh, He's explaining Uh, That God my Father has been working even from the moment he rested from creation back on the seventh day. That though he stopped creating new things, he never stopped working to sustain them. After all, who is it that sends the rain in its season? Who is it that keeps the sun rising? Who listens to and answers our prayers? Who works all things together for the good of those who love him? And so Jesus the Son is simply doing as his Father does. Hebrews 1 actually tells us that he sustains all things by his powerful word. And that is that if Jesus actively stopped willing his creation to exist, we just wouldn't. It's that simple. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Uh, that the breath you are taking this very second is a willful gift of God directly for you. It's a wonderful truth to take hold of. And so, whenever these supposed keepers of God's law confront God the Son himself, not even asking how he had the power to heal a crippled man, uh, but more concerned with the fact that he did the work of making him well and telling him to lift his bed, It just goes to show how foolish and misunderstood their religion had really become. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus warns them about this exact pettiness. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tithe of mint, dill, and cumin, all your little herbs, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. And so my friends, I wanna encourage us this evening, please do not let yourself fall into these kinds of hard-hearted, pedantic, legalistic habits. Now, I admit, maybe not many of us have a tendency to confront people about their failure to maintain certain traditions. It's not really much of a new town vibe, is it? But perhaps in our time, Religious leaders have largely been replaced with the cultural leaders. Uh, That we are compelled not so much to follow the rules and traditions of the church, but really to follow the rules of popular opinion. And we are tempted to want the approval of those who shout the loudest that what God really wants for us is to give unconditional approval to everyone's desires. To never use judgment not to hold one another accountable. We wanna say, I'll do me, you do you, and we'll leave each other alone. Because that's the kind of love that God really wants. And so where the Pharisees may ask, who are you to carry your mat and walk when our traditions tell you no? Our world asks, who are you to claim to know what's right and wrong for other people? Who are you to say that there's only one way to God? that my heart is sick and needs healing? These are the questions that our world can and will ask of us. But for you, Christian, do the things of God matter to you even in the face of opposition? Do they matter beyond going through the motions and keeping everyone happy? Do you follow God's commands even when they are counterintuitive? even when they hurt and cost you something? Do you look to love and serve your brothers and sisters as you have been loved, and so rightly understand who your God is? Let's dig a little deeper. Uh, I need this as much as anyone else. Do you find blessings like church or connect group just another obligation which, if you're honest, you just sort of sigh your way through Or maybe even you just skip them regularly because there are so many other things vying for your attention and oftentimes you let them win. Does the thought of countless people rejecting Jesus make you want to pray for opportunities to tell them what their biggest problem is and to show them the one who offers the only solution? Or for you, has it become enough to just speak very, very vaguely about Jesus and only when directly asked? Most importantly, if you were to face God today and He asked why you should enter His kingdom, would you find yourself pointing to your total dependence on Jesus' forgiveness? That dependence which compels you to try and love as you have been loved, even if you often get it wrong? Or would you fall into the same heart of legalism as these Jewish leaders or the modern culture to say, Well, basically, I'm a good person. You know, I went to church enough to pay my dues. I give some money. I posted about the right causes on social media. I kept your rules well enough. I'm certainly better than lots of other people. Well, friends, today, just like every day, when we open the Bible and ask, just who is this man? Jesus commands us to recognize him God, and he reminds us that we will encounter misunderstanding as we do that, often from those who don't know him at all, but often even in our own hearts. In verse 18, it says, for this reason the Jews tried all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Long ago, Jesus gave the nation of Israel a sign, a Sabbath day of rest but from their physical work as a reminder of their dependence on him. But soon he would give his own life so that all who believe in him would rest forever from their burden of death before God. Just as he once gave signs of healing for our physical illness, so he now heals us from the disease of sickness and death so that we might live as he lived, and so that we could hold out the good news of Sabbath rest to a world which just cannot find rest and satisfaction no matter where it looks. And so we are reminded not to misunderstand Jesus as a petty or legalistic God who doesn't care about you or only loves you when you get things right, but that we have a God who cared deeply enough to give his own life for us, And so I want to encourage you, if at this point in your life, if you feel lonely and distant, I want to ask you to think about what kind of love it takes to die for someone like Jesus died for you. If you are feeling at this moment anger or disillusionment with the church, to remember that Jesus came to save sinners, not perfect people, and that your brothers and sisters will sometimes let you down just as you sometimes let them down. And that if you feel cold and disinterested, remember the passion that drove Jesus to serve the people he loved, just like you and me, and ask him to make that feeling real again. Because there are many ways to misunderstand God. Uh, Our hearts regularly concoct them, and our world encourages them. But for those of us who know Jesus, or who try and draw near because they desperately want to know him. Let's behold the God who stepped into this world and pray he would teach us to love as we have been loved so we can truly understand him as he is. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the reminder that as often and as in many ways we fall short, we misunderstand you, we get things wrong, we fail to love as we have been loved. We praise you that despite all of these things, that your love for us wins out. And so we ask as we go forward, as we turn to you in praise, that you would impress your love upon us, that you would make your passion for us come alive in our hearts and we will be reminded again of who you truly are and understand you rightly. And it's in the name of the Son that we ask all of these things. Amen.